Welcome to the first episode of Who's Editing? A thought experiment in which my guest and I appoint ourselves editors of a comic book line at DC Comics. But the joke's on us, because we can only use the characters of a specific issue of Who's Who, and in fact must use them. I'll let you in on all the rules, but first, let's welcome my guest, uh, with which uh, to create a line of books based on Who's Who number one, handpicked because he's done a number of shows about becoming a power-mad editor from such shows as Cheerscast and Nightcast. It's Ryan Daly. Hi, Ryan. Hi, Cisco. Thank you for having me on this. And this is certainly not what I thought this uh, this idea would become uh, when I started having these power-mad fantasies, but yeah. <laughs> well, last I, I feel like last time that we talked editorship, uh, we actually talked publishing. Uh, so we were talking about formats and how to save the industry and all that kind of stuff uh, on, a, on an episode of FW Presents. But we barely got into the characters themselves uh, because that's really the, the writer's job. Or the, you know, mm-hmm. it's, it's at a lower level than what we were discussing. And some people called us out on it and said, you know, well, not a lot of characters there, not a lot of character ideas. So this is the show that sort of is supposed to compensate for that. Yeah. For you, was there a look? Was there a feel that you were going for as as editor of this, uh, frankly, too big a line of books, <laughs> you know, for one person. Yeah, and that's that's kind of the thing is because I haven't been reading a whole lot of current books, I, I do I, I'm not sure I'm totally in step with a lot of modern creatives. Probably it's mostly just through seeing images passed around on social media like Twitter and stuff, and like following certain creators like that. But certainly one of the the styles and looks among contemporary artists that I've really gravitated to now is a kind of it's like a neoclassical almost retro style and like four big ones that I would want to have on my on my bench would be guys like Chris Samney, Marcos Martin, I think he's Spanish, so I think it might be Martin, Becky Cloonan, and Doc Shaner, Evan Shaner goes by Doc. I like all of these guys and their style, and I think what's common about them is not knowing anything about their, their schooling or their education, but they have a, a style that feels like they're all kind of descended from Alex Toth or Steve Rude or Darwin Cook. Uh, like they all kind of, like it looks kind of like they're from this like Hanna-Barbera, you know, super friends school of like superhero art when you look at their work. And I, I just, I really dig it. it. It feels retro and nostalgic to me, but also kind of forward and, and interesting. So I would kind of have them as my big kind of creative, like, uh, like my, my all stars to, <laughs> to borrow the, that phrase for kind of like the superhero, the main line of books that we would be publishing or that I would be editing for this one. But also other artists that I really like, um, Russell Dodderman, who is on Thor, Nick Darrington from Doom Patrol, Francesco Francavilla is one of my favorite artists and also has a lot of that same style as Samney and Doc Shaner, but it tends to get obscured because he does a lot more horror and heavy shadows and things like that. Uh, also, Jamal Igel, Kerry Randolph, Amy Reader, uh, Otto Schmidt, who did the, the Rebirth Green Arrow book, Brian Stelfreeze, Babs Tarr, and J.H. Williams III. Um, I'm, I'm certain there are other great artists right now that I'm just not thinking of. Um, in terms of writers, I, again, I don't know a whole lot other than like Al Ewing, who has been doing the Immortal Hulk that I love, uh, and somebody like a Jonathan Hickman, who is you know a world or universe creator, uh, so might like an, like assign him to an entire corner of the books but yeah like for the for the artistic style the the overall imprint i would want to be would be that doc shaner chris samney type 
mm-hmm. uh, and sort of flow outward from that. We reach. I think we have similar <laughs> tastes uh, <laughs> because those are all great artists that I would totally poach for my line of books. And I mean, they're not dueling lines of books because they, ex- they will exist we have the same characters, so our lines will exist in parallel universes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, a hop, a skip, and away from the <laughs> actual universe that we live in. So here are the rules, basically, so so people can understand. Uh, each episode of Who's Editing will go uh, by these same rules. Our line of books must include a monthly series for every hero character or team featured, and every non-HQ location as well. If there are two heroes sharing an entry, uh, and it happens in this issue, uh, we can give them separate series, or give them one of them a series, or give them a shared series. We can also give a villain his own series if we absolutely feel the need to, but uh, we can only name a single villain from the issue to receive that honor because we're not Dan DiDio after all. Uh, so imagine <laughs> Dan DiDio isn't even Dan DiDio anymore. Heyo, we're coming back uh, from some crisis or other, so we can reboot characters or use any continuity version. It's really up to us. Titles don't have to match the entries title. Uh, note that we are each pitching our own ideas, so we'll sort of end up with two lines of books. So listeners, you decide which books you actually want to read, I guess. Uh, and with issue one of Who's Who, we have to include a minimum of 22 books in our line. Uh, so we're a big part of DC. It's, you know, uh, as if we'd edit more than a third of the New 52, for example. That's basically the, what it means. And our line uh, skews heavily uh, into fantasy characters. So it's up to us to see how we can possibly make it work. Uh, are they like a subgrouping? Are they, or do we pull them out of the fantasy landscapes? We'll see. Ryan, I'm going to hand it off to you first. And we'll do a bit of back and forth in entry order, uh, but we'll keep our bonus villain series, if any, uh, at the end. So, you know, we don't have to finish on suck-ass Oron. (laughs) Spoilers for an hour later in the show. Well, uh, obviously Uh, people people, uh, have access to Who's Who, number one, uh, and uh, it goes from... Abel to Oron. So let's start with Abel or House of Secrets, maybe. Are you going to go for an anthology or a long narrative? Because they've done that. I am absolutely yes. Um, and even before we get that, um, when uh, to as a preface for this, you know, you approach the group about this. First of all, until you brought this premise up, I had literally never heard of the Who's Who comic before. <laughs> <laughs> Boom, nailed it, got that joke again. Okay. All right, second of all, and, and I was like, I threw out, I was like, you know what? I would be happy to be on the first one and just you pick a random issue for me. I'll, I, I think it'll just be more fun if I don't know what's coming. So you pick number one, which makes sense because it's our intro, it's our gateway into this whole premise. And as I started looking at these entries, I developed a new respect for Rob, Kelly, and Shag and, and what they did on the Who's Who podcast. I haven't gone back and listened to that first episode, but looking at this entry, I was like, whew, what do we do with some of these entries? It's interesting. I, I think I think we probably found some creative avenues for them, but the material that was there, this was hard for some of them. But right off the gate, I mean, as you said it, the first entry was able, and yes, I just took that into, it's a House of Secrets book. It's a horror anthology featuring different stories with different artists, um, their, different writers, different spins, and it's all narrated or bookended by, and this is it, I have both Cain and Abel as the kind of co like sharing the narrating duties for this one but it's a house of secrets with abel being in every issue uh and something else that i'll try and address as i go through we've got 22 or possibly more books in the series 
There are a handful of them that I have designated either multiversity, like multiversity, um, and that's for out-of-continuity books or books that might not share the same common landscape universe dimension as the mainstream books. And then other also like DC Kids or DC Junior would be the all-ages books as they come up. So this is one of those that is multiversity. This could possibly be in the same realm or the same universe as the All-Star Squadron and the other heroes, but not necessarily. This might be just its own little rated PG-13 or rated R horror avenue of of my DC line. And basically you're doing what they used to do in the 70s. Yeah, for this one, yes. For me, same, very much the same thing. I would really want to work with indie writers and artists who normally wouldn't get a paycheck from DC Comics to do these these stories. And there's really two twists on it, two things that I need. Uh, one of them is that uh, when you read old House of Secret stories, it's really forced how they're supposed to be secrets, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the things I would enforce uh, is that aspect of it, that stories have to hinge on a big reveal about our world or cryptozoology or what have you, or, you know, there would be a secret that would be revealed or kept in each of the stories. Mm. And second, there would be one story that isn't necessarily horror in every issue, and it would take place in the DC universe of superheroes. And we'd learn a secret about a longstanding character. It could be as silly as, Ooh. you know, Batman's favorite food, or <laughs> some horrible thing like Luthor did coming up uh, in business. But it's still House of Secrets. Abel is still the host. And he's the one that, that helps reveal the actual DCU's secrets. So that would be like the, a reason for people to buy the book. I'm not really hinging much of my line on this has got to sell. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But uh, it would be like a reason for people that don't necessarily want to read an anthology normally to pick up the mm-hmm. book anyway, because there'd be like a little bit in there, uh, it, you know, important to whatever book that they are reading. I, I really like that idea of having like a sneaking in a secret files and origins in there, but mm. also make it very, make it very something like really minutiae, not like an actual like, like narrative about like what made Booster Gold who he is today, but just something really odd about him. Something like that would be yeah. fun. Next up is Adam Strange. And I gotta say, Ryan, I've never cared about Ran, Ron, the planet. Mm-hmm. The planet. I never cared about Ran. I mean to disassociate Adam Strange from it. Okay. You still got the Zeta Beam, and he's continually being drawn. I mean, the the beam is continually being drawn to him on Earth. It sends him across the entire galaxy. So the Vagan <laughs> system, Thanagar, Oa, uh, the early days of the Legion's home worlds. Uh, even through time, maybe, but not through Earth's history, but like to Krypton before it blew up or to Mars in the before the fall. It's not a time travel book. It's really a space exploration book. Uh, but I would still allow that uh, with definite story arcs taking place on famous DC worlds while Adam Strange waits out the clock. And I think there is room for the love of his life, Alana. Uh, he meets her on Ron, but she would become a Zeta Beam victim herself. So uh, I think that'd be part of the series. They're always going to the same destinations, but maybe not the exact same spot. So they have to find each other. And by the time they find each other, zing, they're, they're sent back to Earth or Ran. They would each be attached to their own planets, and they could only meet in these random spots. That's what I would do with Adam Strange. What about you? That was actually very close to the first idea I had for him. Like it was like this was another one that I struggled with because I like Adam Strange and the general conceit of him, but the problem with making him part of the greater DC universe is he's only interesting when he's away from Earth. 
Like when he like like how do you make him get him involved in the Justice League because he's not the hero when he's like on Earth. He's he's only when he's away from it. So my first thought was yeah, I would I would have him start on Rod, but then the Zeta Beam doesn't zap him back to Earth. It zaps him to some other planet, and he's always you know bouncing around trying to find something else. Then I went in a different direction. I had this idea, I think just last night. Part of the issue that I think is a struggle to grapple with uh, Adam Strange is because he is based on tropes, genre tropes, narrative ideas that are like 80 years old at this point. Mm-hmm. It's the John Carter of Mars thing where he's teleported to this other world where he gets to become the hero. Now, he looks cool because he's got a laser gun and a jetpack, but it's this really kind of it's an old-fashioned type of thing that I don't know how well it plays with. So I thought, let's reinvent him and borrow genre tropes that I then realized after I thought about it were now 20 or 30 years old. So we're updating it, by, but just by inches. So what I might do with Adam Strange is I would make him a young teenage-ish or older teenager or something, but a programmer for a virtual reality video game. And he creates this Zeta device or whatever that plugs him into this planet Ron, which is just part of a virtual reality simulation where you're supposed to defend this city against these like horrible invasions. And like the NPCs are the characters like Alana and, and Sardath and everything. But what this guy, Adam does is he creates this data that plugs him into the world in a, out to a degree really unparalleled before where the danger feels more real. The pain is real. Threat of death might actually be real. And because Adam is kind of a socially awkward, dysfunctional guy who really gets more attuned with like machines and programs than he does with actual people, to him, the game aspect of falling in love with Alana and her family becomes really real, and he doesn't want to lose her. And that is his motivation to keep going back in there every 24 hours. He goes back into that game because it's a real thing for him. So this would be a lot more like a Ready Player One type Type of story or with like maybe little bits of Westworld or something like that. Or Tron. Yeah, 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 yeah. And this might not fit in with the regular mainstream uh, uh, universe. This might have to be like a multiversity thing and getting into the publishing aspect again. Maybe this shouldn't be published as a monthly comic. This might have to be something that takes on a different format. I mean, I would try, but uh, we would see. The direction I was going with it, it really kind of felt like it eats off the, the normal path of the mainstream line. Yeah, and this is a Doc Shannon or kind of of a good book for for his style, I think. Next up is Airwave 1 and 2. So you can go Golden Age, you can go... Uh, modern, you can use both somehow, you can, it's up to you. And this one, I kind of went with Airwave 1.5. Okay. <laughs> I would have this set today. It would be a contemporary character. But the one that I went with as I was reading through the, the entries, the character I would have would be Helen Jordan, the wife of slain district attorney Larry Jordan, who briefly kind of secretly operated as a costumed crime fighter called Airwave. She inherits his helmet and the suit that gives her power able to travel across air and radio waves as though she's teleporting as long as there is some kind of telecommunication device nearby, which is easy now because people have phones attached to them. And she kind of just enjoys the thrill of fighting the bad guys and, and maybe keeping that secret. So, you know, it, it would be a, a kind of like modern story, but I would flip it so that the airwave character is uh, a woman. Um, and she's a widow who now kind of takes up. Uh, it's, it's very similar to the James Robinson Starman, where uh, his brother 
is murdered in the first issue and it's about him taking over except she would be much more willing to kind of embrace the tropes of being a hero because she likes that and this is one that i actually had an idea for the creative team i would have this one written and illustrated by a current artist named joelle jones who has done, I think, some stuff for Marvel or DC. But she's also really well known for uh, her own book called Lady Killer, mm-hmm. um, which is like a female serial killer kind of I, in like the 50s. It's sort of like in the world of Mad Men, if one of their like secretaries or wives that they take for granted was really a serial killer like Dexter. Like, that's kind of crazy. And I think she could just do something really interesting with this type of character. Part of my juggling the line was not interfering with what I wanted to do with All-Star Squadron. <laughs> With, with, with <laughs> sure, my yeah. problem, yeah, uh, which is coming up. So this is definitely for me also a modern day airwave series. But times moved on, and so the new airwave is like the grandson or great grandson by this point. I mean, we can't have those direct legacies that we used to have of the of the original who's still in the golden age. But I want to include Larry Jordan in the series, uh, like what they did with with Happy Terrell in the Ray series. Okay. Yeah. At some post war point, the golden age airwave will have will have something happens to him. You know, his consciousness is turned into radio waves. Uh, the adventure actually begins with his descendant picks him up on his phone. It's not going to be like CB <laughs> radio or any or anything now the series has to be more about wi-fi basically uh you know it's this is where we're at so i think the young airwave can't turn into a radio wave uh, but he has this all wi-fi sidekick uh mm. who's sort of this professor stein but he can also, also do stuff on the internet but he doesn't really understand the internet because he's a guy from the <laughs> 40s so i make it a generational comedy basically is, is would, would be the tone of it so like a little bit professor stein a little bit oracle but just kind of not that not as helpful or efficient right he's not even a boomer you know, he's from the great generation and he just doesn't really get it. And he gets lost in the cat memes or, you know, it's Wreck-It Ralph. But so, so that, that was my idea for it. I, I've also regendered a character, but she comes up later. Uh-huh. Uh, next up was Alley Cat Abra. Broke Captain Carrot and the Zucru. Woke taking one of those characters and spinning them off into their own series without first having a Zucru on the stands. Let, let's let's just take these characters and give them star status right away. This is straight up funny animals, Zatanna, shenanigans. It is all ages. It's female empowerment. Uh, send in pictures of your cat for the letters page. <laughs> She's got an assistant because she also gives shows just like Zatanna does. So she has an assistant called Streaky, no connection. That would be my, my DC Kids series you know from from this issue yeah mine i didn't even uh, yeah i i kind of went the same thing except i just i made it part of an ensemble i did zoo crew adventures as a dc kids book it's an ensemble superhero team with with the anthropomorphized animals like captain carrot but ali Catabra is one of the regular team members possibly like one of the stars in order to you know to justify her appearance on this episode you know she would be like one of the front runners one of the most important female figures on that team ali cat abra and the zoo crew there you go <laughs> Sorry, Captain Garrett. Next is All-Star Squadron. So th- this could be a big one. I mean, this is our first team. What would you do with the All-Star Squadron? Again, with all of these, I meant to contemporize them. So this is a world that doesn't have the Justice League of America. So this is, you know, a brand new. It is the premier super team which features the other characters that we'll get in this line, including Animal Man, um, Aquaman, Amazing Man, also Airwave uh, would be part of this, and the Atom. Now, if you look at those characters, because their power sets, you know, this is not 
pretty grand Justice League uh, of old, like a big seven, or even the Avengers at their height. Like this is kind of closer to the Avengers when it was just Cap's kooky quartet and Goliath came back, maybe, uh, with a little bit of Justice League International. So the dangers they face might not be, you know, the the dark side level alien invasion. It's a little bit more scaled down. But for the purposes of this world and, and the line that we're doing, this would be the you know world's first super team with all the big heavy hitters as heavy as they are uh, on their team and it would just be the team up adventures of like the the main superheroes from this group bold to, to actually say that that dc universe doesn't have a justice league i like i i sort of thought for me i, I was okay i'm doing i'm handling 22 books but somebody else is handling the rest yeah and i approached it as if this is if i got my own imprint my own publishing company and this was the slate of characters that i had like this isn't a world that has a superman batman or green lantern that's totally legitimate for some reason all of the heroes have start with the letter a but that's (laughs) that's your rules that's what i'm working with (laughs) yeah well it's called a comics you know there you go so uh what is this house of secrets so yeah so (laughs) the all-star squadron for me i you know i went old school for sure first i'm definitely throwing tons of money at jerry ordway to reprise the book yeah as artist uh i and I would run it much like the way it was run before Roy Thomas let Crisis play with his head, basically. I think he sort of lost it at some point, uh, trying to reconnect all the... He was too focused on continuity. I don't want that. I want it to be the real historical World War II. I want it to be all the Golden Age characters, but it doesn't have to be that kind of storytelling. I don't need Golden Age Superman in there or any of the other characters that don't work. It's mm-hmm. not important to me. Core team of players that I like, because basically this is just like All-Star Squadron used to be, all the characters are drafted, basically. If you lived and worked in the 40s, you are a member of All-Star Squadron. Mm-hmm. But you're still playing with a core group. I like, in particular, Tarantula, Wildcat, Johnny Quick, uh, and Liberty Bell, Dr. Fate, Our Man, Robot Man. These are the ones I like, especially as main stars. And then there's the book would always have a backup story uh, featuring another Golden Age character, another Golden Age hero at the back, just to fill out that world. And that's where you stick your Bullet Man and your Madam Fatal and your Doctor Occult one-offs. Yeah, cool. But I'm very mainstream on this. Uh, one of the characters that is in All-Star Squadron that I would not be in All-Star Squadron anymore is Amazing Man. So I, <laughs> I've ported him to the present day, is, is the thing, since he is a, an 80s creation anyway. I keep him in Detroit. I want him to be a neighborhood superhero who suddenly gets famous because he stops some major threat or something. And his series is about trying to stay grounded when there are a bunch of people throwing money and other trappings of fame like JLA membership at him. I would get an African-American writer on the book. That's obvious. Mm -hmm. The danger with Amazing Man is that he seems to fall into tropes that have been used on other heroes of color, like the, you know, community connection, the family that knows his secret. Even the thing about being an Olympic athlete, that's all been used or was already used or, you know, it's like steel, it's black lightning, it's static. Um, So as editor, I would be encouraging my creative team to keep those things, sure, but give them a fresh, as fresh a spin as possible as well. So that to be aware that this could easily become a cliche. Uh, you said Amazing Man was basically one of your All-Star Squadron, one of your JLAers, you know, so how big is this book? Yeah, I so I would actually, like, similar to you, I, I didn't want him to feel like he was falling into the same kind of 
like the superhero from the ghetto or, or from the, the neighborhood or something like that. I wanted to kind of lift him up out of that a little bit. Uh, I would keep aspects of his origin, how he was a former athlete who lost his career and then just couldn't get any job because there, there wasn't enough, uh, you know, out there for a, a struggling black man who maybe didn't have the greatest education because of his gifted athletic prowess. He was just, you know, pushed through schools, uh, in order to be, you know, the best football player, or basketball player. And now once that career is over and most of those careers, most like 90% of, you know, professional athlete careers last two or three years at the most. What does he do now? So becoming the superhero through this sort of chance or, or accidental encounter is really his second chance to be that celebrity, but also to really make good and, and show his value. So I would really, I would play him up. And the fact that he's called amazing man, I would make him the most high profile public face of the superheroes and really kind of be one of the focuses of this all-star squadron he is the one who is perceived to be everybody's best friend he has the reputation of the captain america or the fantastic four uh type of superhero i would make tweaks to his costume probably ditch the character. i mean the, he amazing man might be like the one person i would say this about where i think he looks better in justice league extreme or extreme justice than he did in his original costume look i just the the green and yellow is a problematic color scheme i think for superheroes the same thing for airwave one too i think it just needs a third color to pop to really kind of break out of that that kind of putrid boogery yellow and green blend (laughs) uh it it needs something else so he definitely needs a costume overhaul he needs a good supporting cast and a rogues gallery but yeah i would have him be like one of the premier a-list superheroes like a captain america level he is the amazing man yeah i think that's something that they're probably like media coined as Mm -hmm, as a name it doesn't sound like something you'd pick yourself right (laughs) reed richards what were you thinking yeah exactly so (laughs) i guess we we both went in the same direction in the sense that there's a lot of fame like a fame culture around him Mm -hmm. Uh, and i think for me i was sort of inspired by narratives of star athletes of uh, rappers and that you know it's like it is a part of the african-american experience of how to become famous. There seem to be like certain avenues that were clearer to get there. And this is going to be like the superhero equivalent. Yeah. Well, I I don't want him to be the Luke Cage though. That's my one kind of big difference. So ambush bug for me, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. But for you, what is is this like a revamp concept or are we going really classic? You loved ambush bug from the beginning and I didn't, I wasn't there for his beginning. So when I'm looking at ambush bug stories, 20 years removed from maybe when they were pop- they they kind of seem dated and slightly irrelevant to me so unless you get Keith Giffen back to do the same thing he was doing and I don't know if that really translates well so for me I would try and do something different uh, try and evolve him or update him a little bit and something. But, uh, it, but the, the reason to have him is to do the fourth wall breaking kind of meta commentary type of stories. So I would do ambush bug versus the DC universe. And I would have him basically every issue is him quantum leaping uncontrollably throughout DC history. And this is where I would go back and have like he is ported into into like old Batman comics and old Superman and Wonder Woman and Justice League comics where you would actually get like creators like recreating the same type of panels and, and look of those original comics. But Ambush Bug is there in some way. And in every case, he changes the outcome for the worse. Like in every way, he, he screws up that story so something terrible happens, and then he's ported out to the next one. And every issue is a different one like that. He's a reverse Booster Gold. Exactly. <laughs> I, I'd love to read that. 
<laughs> for sure. <laughs> I'd love to read that. It's not even impossible for it to happen in my own Ambush Bug series, <laughs> yeah. because anything could happen in an Ambush Bug comic, really. To me, yes, Keith Giffen is back on it. It's riffing on the DCU of new and old. It's irreverent. It's absurdist, as it used to be. And I'm a character in the series, because... I'm the editor, so I'm trying yes. to corral yep. Ambush Bug, and I fail. So it's it's a chance for me to to be in comics the same way that Julia Schwartz and then Didio were in Ambush Bug comics of different eras. Next up is our first real fantasy series, but there's going to be quite a few. Somehow they always, I don't know, they all had, their names started with A. This is Warlord, and then everybody else's names start with A. The first one is Amethyst, Princess of Gemworld. So uh, this is a character that DC has recently brought back a couple times. But now they've, they've had her join Young Justice, and she spends at least some of her time on our Earth. Uh, it's just like a cross between Mary Marvel and She-Ra, I guess. I, I don't think I would have that. I, I don't want Amethyst in the so-called real world. I'd be content, actually, with letting Amy Reader's current series go from where it actually just started uh, and push that book really to young readers as an Alice in Wonderland with swords and magic. So we got a 13-year-old girl finding her power in a fantasy setting. I'm thinking, as far as mood goes, I'm thinking, you know, Gallagher's Only Living Boy or Only Living Girl Mm -hmm. comics. Mm -hmm. Uh, Storybook stuff. And I would try to sell that to younger but not too young readers. Uh, Yeah, I'm pretty much exactly there. That was like, this was one of those things where I looked at it, I was like, I don't think there was much broken with the concept or uh, the original thing. I would kind of do the exact same thing. And this was one where... I remembered that Amy Reader was associated with in some way, but I didn't know that she had a current Amethyst book out. Yeah. So I was like, I would probably have Amy Reader draw this one. Yeah, she, like, she writes and draws it. Okay, so I would probably continue that. I, I just like have it. And um, yeah, I mean, I I, just, I would probably do much the same thing. I, I will come back in a little bit to the, the Gemworld concept later on in the book, but oh. I, I might keep it within the same world, like that she does have the connection to the main DC universe that she's still part of that world, at least within her origin. Like, her Earth is the same Earth as the Amazing Man and the All-Star Squadron and stuff. It's just a little bit different than once she leaves out and once she goes into the gem world of, of her heritage and everything like that. But yeah, I, yeah, this was kind of one of those simple things where I looked at it and said, I, I don't want to reinvent this one because it does. I don't think it needs it. Uh, the next one up is be careful what you say, because this is one of my favorites. Uh, (laughs) What are you going to do with Animal Man? So this one, oh gosh, this one was tough because Animal Man has been treated fairly well by good creative teams. Certainly the Grant Morrison version, I love that. I didn't read much that came after that from the original Vertigo line, but with the New 52, I thought Jeff Lemire taking it into a horror book was very interesting. I talked about that on a recent DC OCD podcast. Yeah. But I decided, you know what, for this one, I'm going to go the other direction. I'm not going to make this a horror book, and I'm not going to make this a meta you know, <laughs> exorcism of my own creative demons and everything. I'm going to make Animal Man a fun-loving superhero who is also a family man. He would be one of the heroes of the All-Star Squadron. He would be the most grounded and the most relatable of the superhero community. He would probably be the closest in tone to the post-crisis Flash or Spider-Man. I would give him a wacky rogues gallery, um, and he tries to fight crime and save the day while also trying to keep his wife happy and trying to make it to his kids' softball games and concerts. Like, that would be... That would be the Parker Luck aspect of his life, how Peter like was always trying to – or or how Wally or Barry – sorry, was always trying to make it to his date, and Peter was always trying to 
like you know not terrify aunt may and and make it to his things buddy would try to be there for his kids but at the same time he has this other responsibility because he can do things that nobody else can and just the slew of type of powers that an animal can have there's just something i think is very refreshingly fun and lighthearted about that so i would make him the fun jokery flash spider-man type of hero of this world sure i'll disagree with one thing you said which is that he was fairly well treated over the course, <laughs> yeah, because those issues that you didn't read, the Vertigo, even pre-Vertigo, the the stuff between Morrison and today, it's like Grant Morrison broke the toy, and yeah. then nobody was able to fix it again, or they, they tried to play him with the brokenness. They went for weird horror and just Animal Man becoming a sort of animal. Uh, all of that stuff is no one was actually able to ever really do a follow-up. I, I would almost say the same is true of Grant Morrison's X-Men work, too. But that's good going off on a different tangent. Interesting. So I want to feel the same that I did you know, in the early issues of Animal Man, before it went meta. That story's been told. So let, let's not go meta again. Buddy is that hero juggling family life with superheroics and, and superheroics definitely come second. Uh, he's a sucker for a good cause. He gets involved, you know, sometimes, I guess, naively into activism and not just animal rights or environment. I mean, he's just a sucker for a cause. Good clean art, a writer who knows how to play around with the powers, because I think you're absolutely right on that. That's the most, that's a key thing to making Animal Man fun and interesting. If all you can do with him is Flight of the Eagle and Strength of the Gorilla, go and write Vixen. <laughs> it's just not, you know, it's got to be a little, That this is where the weirdness comes in. Whether he's imitating earthworms and and bombardier shrimp and stuff like that, so <laughs> it needs to be fueled by safari cards. Is what I'm saying. <laughs> so my my first thought for a writer or a writing team was maybe Abnett and Lanning because they really did that with the Legion. Then I'd have to keep their darker tendencies in check because that's not you know sometimes they go a bit dark. So maybe just like Mark Wade, we just discussed on another show that he did the same thing with Daredevil's power set and mood. Yep, yep. So probably would be one of my choices for an Animal Land comic. I'm not sure if Abnett and Lanning are a writing team anymore. I think they might have had a fall out. <gasps> I think. I mean, I don't think Amy Lanning was working on any of the Aquaman books. I think they might have broken up, but I don't know for sure. I could just be reading into something. <gasps> Paul Hicks, the Corona Crasher. What are you doing here? <laughs> well, I'm crashing all the podcasts. I thought I'd start with this one. You're talking about characters and pictures? You want some pictures from me? Uh, we're up to Animal Man. Okay, okay, great. Um, Animal Man and the Legion of Super Pets. So Animal Man's powers stop working unless it's in contact with a super-powered animal. So he teams up with, you know, Comet and Streaky and um, oh, what's that cat from uh, the Red Lanterns? And, uh, Dexter, yeah. Um, he teams up with all of them, leads a team. They have fun adventures. <laughs> Think Legion of Superheroes, Substitute Heroes type tone. That sort of thing. What do you reckon? I reckon that that's maybe better than what Ryan and I just uh, just pitched. <laughs> of course it is. Of course it's much better. Anyway, got to go. See you later. All right. Good crashing. The next one is Anthro, the first boy on Earth. I'm in the minority about liking prehistoric narratives, but I consider Anthro in the if it ain't broke, don't fix it category. Uh, I think the important thing to do from an editing standpoint is to have a well-regarded artist do like, I, I want it to be like watercolor. I mean, the original book had that kind of coloring. So I want like a lavish series that, that makes the Ice Age come alive. Uh, this book is never going to sell gangbusters uh, with the comic nerds, mm -hmm. but it should stand out as a as an artistic artifact. You know, something that, that people look at and say, oh, this was... 
a great uh, Joe Kubert series or something. Oh, yeah, yeah. Obviously, Howie Post died like 10 years ago. So I'm not getting back the artists from the 60s, obviously. But looking at it today, it's like, you know, this still works. This is kind of the look that I would want to still have today with whatever artist. This is another one that uh, this is the second one that I actually slotted into for being an all ages DC kids book. And I took the the anthro and I would call the book something like Cave Boy mm. or something because that sounds well, it's vaguely super superheroish. But you're right; it's it's still it's Anthro, the first boy, a young Cro-Magnon coming of age in a primeval world of savage animals and a few remaining dinosaurs that might be left. It would be like a Jungle Book type of thing where he's like the one person like in this world of, of fun animals that he befriends and, and a little bit of like Tarzan Boy where he he's riding around on a saber-toothed tiger or something like that or or woolly mammoths yeah i would i would have it feel kind of like uh like a disney or pixar thing like there was a a movie called the first dinosaur or no the good dinosaur the jungle book and and something like that i would just make i think you could have a ton of fun doing a lot of what you were describing and just skew it towards an all-ages kids book because anthro does his supporting cast is his family is the younger mm-hmm. kids and the uh, the parents are still neanderthals and <laughs> yeah and i would i would keep that yeah. i wouldn't have him necessarily be the only human on it like the like in the jungle book or tarzan it wouldn't be that but he would that would be a part of it would be his relationships and his interactions with the wild animal life of the time next up is our first location mm. uh, i guess the house of secrets might have counted but it was an entry for a character this time it's a an entry for a place how do you figure apocalypse ah this was one that i thought of for a little while but the first idea that came to me was the one that stuck and i tried to think of going different directions but there was really only one way that i felt like i wanted to approach this one um and that is i would change the title from apocalypse to big barda and the fury of apocalypse And it's the story of Barda, captain of the female Furies, trained by Granny Goodness to hunt down and eliminate any and all threats to Darkseid. At some point, she has a crisis of conscience. Maybe it's because she meets this young man, Scott Free. She secretly helps to save him, and she joins Hymon's resistance network, uh, which she's sort of undermining Granny and the Furies. Eventually, she is exposed, and she kind of has to survive on her own as she's being hunted by her former friends and trainees that are sent to kill her. This is one that I, the creative team I picked would be, it would be written by Gail Simone. And the art, I didn't want somebody who was exactly a Jack Kirby clone, because at some point, that's just diminishing returns, and you're always going to suffer by comparison. But I wanted somebody that could do something crazy and epic and big like that, but that you wouldn't ever compare directly, because it's so different and distinct. Um, so I went with a guy named Mike Del Mundo, who was a recent artist on Thor in the lead up to the War of the Realm story, just like one year ago, two years ago. And if you look up his work and some of the stuff that he did on the Thor book, really kind of create like exaggerated, like lots of lavish colors and, and, and big events, and and he can do big, broad action with you know mythological level creatures and, and heroes. And I think he would just be really great for the story of like big bar. You know, trying to make it through, you know, the Armageddon and like all of these locations in in Darkseid trying to survive as being what would eventually be almost a Harriet Tubman type of character of leading a resistance and helping people escape from these slave pits and escape from Darkseid. So that would be my thing. It would would really it would just it would be set on Apocalypse. That would be the world. But it's a big Barda book. Mm, uh, You had me at Barda. 
And then I, <laughs> I don't even know what you said afterwards. Because uh, <laughs> uh, I went in a completely different direction, although I imagine it's going to be a little bit like the same narrative. Because I would use the Hunger Dogs IP. Uh, I know the Hunger <laughs> Dogs are actually like the poor people, not necessarily the soldiers. I've just reconfigured that a little bit. Hunger Dogs would be the title, and the series would be like a gritty war series about life in one of Darkseid's foot soldier battalions. I would go for a Kirby emulator on this. I, I picked uh, Tom Scioli from um, uh, Godland. I want the story grounded, inspired by real stories, real-life soldiers of the 20th century wars. This is the Nam or Band of Brothers, but with Kirby tech. And yeah. also, like, your superiors don't don't give a shit about you. <laughs> you know, it's like you're really disposable. And so it's seeing the war between the, the new gods of New Genesis, uh, you know, and Apocalypse, but through the eyes of the smallest possible component in that war. And so so I, I want to really go gritty, and yet the art would be have these fantastic Kirby-ish landscapes and technology, but the story itself would be like this very grounded thing. There's one other thing that I might do a subset for the Apocalypse book. And this was the, another thought that I had, and it's kind of basing it around, we're, we're making it, the Apocalypse sort of like the central idea of what is this planet and what is it like and how do you survive on this planet. Um, and kind of basing it on a show like Deadwood or even this is what the IDW Transformers books did for a little while. And, and shout out to John and Maggie Schaefer Hames because they cover this on their Rod Pod podcast. But essentially the premise is Dark Side is gone. He's either dead or he has left Apocalypse. Nobody knows where he is, but he's off the table. What happened? Maybe, maybe the war between New Genesis and Apocalypse is over and, and High Father and New Genesis won. And now Orion and Light Ray and Mr. Miracle and Big Barda are in charge of Apocalypse. How do you bring a peaceful civilization to that world? And how do the denizens of that world rise up and do they accept the new rules, the, the, like a, a life that's not fascistic and, and horrible? Or like, is that the only thing that they've ever known? So they reject it. Do other characters, you know, like kind of like seek to undermine them? Just like what, how do you tame or civilize a world like Apocalypse with the absence of Dark Side? Something like that might be an alternative. I don't, that wouldn't be my first choice, but it could be interesting. Yeah, I like that because it's either after the war or even just the Dark Side's gone and suddenly it's, it's all factions, uh, you know, mm -hmm. Granny Goodness is a kids, and then, you know, right. uh, Vermin <laughs> Vunderbar has his group. Well, yeah, and, yeah, yeah. So each of them, and so there's a war. Calabac has. Yeah, yeah there's a war yeah. on Apocalypse as to who will be its ultimate governor. Right. Very interesting. The next entry is very different. It's Aqua Girl and Aqualad. So here, I'm tempted to, to call my series Aqua Teens, and it's the two of them as equal partners in a young but supportive romance, basically high school sweethearts who will eventually stay together. I want that dynamic. I don't want cynicism in this thing at all. So, so yes, mm -hmm. there, there's superhero stuff, but I want their main concerns to be going to rock shows and, and finishing their chores before they can go swimming or something. So I, the tone should be fun and humorous. I'm thinking Titans go meets beach blanket bingo uh, but you know <laughs> uh, but i also want the characters to be a little more grounded than that i mean i still want the characters to feel real in a way that nobody in the beach movies does <laughs> yeah yeah exactly did you pick one or the other or are they actually staying together in your series no i picked one over the other and with apologies to hub from the tighten up the, <laughs> the defense and and tt wasteland podcast I have never really cared about Aqualad. Um, Garth doesn't really have much appeal to me, even when he's 
got the Tom Jones hair. Um, so I went with Aqua Girl. Um, and I would just, I would make this about Tula as a young female superhero. And she's kind of like a surfer chick, uh, or a lifeguard. Uh, she lives a life that is close to the, the coast with normal friends and a supporting cast. Basically, this would be my attempt to tap into that CW audience. Mm show uh, for the comics this would feel like supergirl or the the mercy reef aquaman tv pilot that never got picked up um this would kind of feel like that on the comic book level this would be my spider gwen or my ms marvel type of comic this would be the the young girl who's the star with her kind of soap opera life dealing with her friends and her issues and it would have definitely it would have that type of feel and i would probably enlist uh babs tar to be the artist for this one i really liked what she did with batgirl uh and i think she has a good vibe for this one mm. she has her own like motor crush something comic i think is the name of it um so uh, yeah something like that would be interesting is she a member of the your all-star squadron uh she is not although that could be if she came up later on as like a, a junior member or an inductee uh, I didn't think about putting her on it, but she could be. Yeah. Just checking. Uh, we'll take a small break for a promo now because we're heading into, I'd say, the meat <laughs> of the of the issue. The bigger <laughs> stars of the issue are coming up, and we'll see what we did with them. The suspense is killing me. <laughs> Afternoon, everybody. Ryan! How's that baby treating you, Mr. Daly? Like Thanos, snapping his fingers at my bank account. In that case, how about a beer on the house? Sure. Got to give my mouth something to do between podcasts. Say, Ryan, I don't get how you have so much time for podcasting. Doesn't your wife want you spending time with the baby? Would you? (laughs) Truth is, I think she's a little worried about how much time I'm spending with the kid, ever since his first words were Dagobah system. (laughs) Now she wants me to go out and do something mature, something productive, and... Most of all, something lucrative that can support the family. So you're going to... Podcast about cheers, yeah. That kid's not going to start college for 18 years. I got time. (laughs) Cheerscast, the podcast where everybody knows your name. Coming soon to the Fire and Water Network. We're back, and as promised, big stars, or do we make them small stars in our own line of books? So uh, what are you going to do with Aquaman? And a reminder, there's a lot of pressure here. I don't know if you heard, but this network is sort of half run by an Aquaman <laughs> fan. <laughs> we can't disappoint Rob. I have literally never heard of that until you just said it. <laughs> no, I mean, in terms of getting big, I would make Aquaman the biggest. He is the defender of Earth's oceans and seas. He keeps that balance. He protects the sea from the pollution, the ecological dangers from the surface. He also protects the people of the surface from the terrors down below. Because for my group of like the, that core group of heroes and everything, the all-star squadron, because he is the most alien of that all-star squadron, he would also be the closest analog to Superman in my line, uh, in being perceived to be kind of of two worlds. He would also probably be the physically the strongest and the mightiest. He fights pirates. He fights Lovecraftian monsters. He fights eco-terror monsters, river and bog witches. 
Um, I would definitely build up his rogues gallery back in 2006 or seven. I kind of indulged my fantasy and said, like, what if I got to do, uh, like an Aquaman comic, you know, even before like Jeff Johns was taking that on. And I mapped out like the first 30, 30 issues or something like that with like multiple story arcs and what, what type of threats he would be facing. And I had a ton of villains, everything from like Black Manta's wife and like this whole subculture basically, well, because of when it was like, when I came up with this idea, it was right after Hurricane Katrina. And there were all of these, um, basically these, these displaced black people who would have died in Hurricane Katrina, would have drowned because their government failed them. But you know who saved them? It was Black Manta. And then it was really easy for him to turn them into his army and his family, almost like a cult of like pirates and like these operatives. And so it's, it's not just like Aquaman fighting them, but like an entire sub army of that. But also, you know, monsters that are like part coral reef who are like like attacking the surface evil corporations that want to pollute and want to destroy so yeah i I had plenty of ideas for for aquaman and that he would be my biggest my closest uh superhero one and as we will see later on his connections to atlantis would be tenuous Mm. like very minimal he might be living on you know in his lighthouse home of his parents or he might have his aqua cave but he would not be a king or a ruler of an undersea world in this story yeah it's classic look aquaman it's not jason momoa or yeah anything. oh yeah, yeah yeah i no yeah the, the orange and green i've always loved that outfit i i bristle when they try to uh, like adapt it or just i think the blue camouflage is an interesting look but to me that's not aquaman so i go with orange and green all the way yeah nobody's been able to draw it since you know so almost too many options with Aquaman, you know? Uh, <laughs> personally, I like the Policeman of the Seas uh, more than the Atlantis stuff. So I'm also not... Atlantis exists because it's also in this issue. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> can't yeah, go away from it. You know, stay tuned for that. But uh, anyway, it pushes Aquaman in the Arion corner of, you know, it's kind of... I've already got Atlantis in different time periods that I have to juggle. So I don't want Aquaman near that. It's just redundant. Uh, one of the problems that I, when I look at, when I read... Aquaman stories from the Policemen of the Sea eras, you know, like the Silver Age and the Bronze Age. There's a lot of focus on open water or under the water. And none of that is very relatable or very interesting. Sure, there's interest under the sea, but it's not relatable. Open water is just very ordinary. And how many stories you want to set there with with pirates and smugglers. And uh, really, I want my focus to be on coastal areas. And there's just not enough done with that. It makes Aquaman international. Because if he's yep. interacting with people all around the world on their coastal areas, then suddenly, you know, he's everybody's hero. So that pushes him towards the, the Superman side of things, the, the yep. John John's side of things. For story purposes, I would set all the adventures on peculiar coastal environments like uh, Venice, uh, the mangrove mm. swamps of Asia, the, the Giant's Causeway in Northern Ireland, famous ports like Port Said or Hong Kong or Halifax, not just the old classics like the Bermuda Triangle and the ice flows of the Arctic Ocean. The Amazon River or something like that. You know, I would easily see Aquaman going down into the Great Lake. Yep. If there's water, he's interested. Because it's always like these generic islands and that kind of stuff in the old Aquaman stories. I want it to be very specific and of our world, and I want it to be researched and give the artist opportunities for interesting art that does not necessarily go into the fantasy of Atlantis and whatever's under the water. And I think it's mm-hmm. also a good way and place to build up Aquaman's rogues gallery 
and, and at the same time, the superhuman populations of other countries than the U.S. to have mm-hmm. like a more globalized DC universe through Aquaman. I have always wanted an Aquaman story illustrated by J.H. Williams the third. Because of like stuff that he did with like water in uh one of his Batwoman story arcs mm. in the New Fifty Two was just incredible, and the way he does like different languages within art and how how much he can adapt it. He deviates a little bit from like that Doc Shaner and that Chris Samney like thing that I really kind of did to hold on to with the core of of my superhero titles, but maybe break away from that for a story arc or two or find some way to incorporate a J.H. Williams for an Aquaman story. It sounds like you're plotting your Aquaman is the one you're plotting. I mean, I, I had that. Like, once you asked me, I was like, oh, I can talk about Aquaman for a little bit. I've got, like, let me go find that old uh, file that I've got <laughs> saved for the past like, 13 years or something. Yeah, just find a good scripter and it's like uh, you can do your editing of 20, yeah, 22 yeah. books. <laughs> <laughs> Here's my story Bible for the first two years. Yeah, exactly. Run with this. Uh, another character that we got that had his own series for a good while is Arak, Son of Thunder. So this, I like the historical setting, but uh, Roy Thomas went about it a bit too quickly, maybe? Within an issue, he's already in Europe. So we need mm-hmm. to spend six to 12 months with Eric in America or ma- and making the crossing to Europe with the Vikings. I, I want to extend that portion of it. But I would totally push the Conan vibe on this, uh, but both the art and the stories. Can we bring in a native writer on the series? That would be one of my goals. Sure, yeah. Well. Eric could even be from a, the tribe that matches the writer's ethnicity to give the portrayal some legitimacy. Uh, mm-hmm. But, you know, like the native writers that I know aren't really doing sword and sorcery. It's more like thinking of Van Camp or it's like it's realistic drama in a modern context. But just because I'm not aware of them doesn't mean they don't exist. Yeah. But that's, you know, that would be sort of my goals. Still kind of keep it or even push it even closer to what Roy Thomas did with his Conan books of the 70s. Uh, this was another one which, like Amethyst, Princess of Gemworld, I just I didn't really see a reason to change much of this. I also don't know very much about this. I've never read an Eric comic. I, I know of him from this entry and from, I think, what Rob and Roy Thomas talked about on an episode of Mountain Comics, I think. I, I do like the concept, and as much as I like, you know, a, a Conan cipher, and I think it's really interesting to, to play up a different aspect. I like that he has a different nationality, and I really like your idea of getting somebody with uh, an actual connection to uh, that lineage and, and see – uh, the legitimacy that they bring to it. So I would be all for that. But other than that, this was one that I was like, I, I can't come up with any idea to change the, this basic premise or what story ideas I would bring to it. I would be the same. Did you have a, uh, at any point, try to th- connect all the fantasy characters together in some way? I did, actually. For a little while, um, between Amethyst, Arak, and the next one that we're going to talk about, because they all have a name and then a title that comes after it, I did kind of think about putting them all into a sort of a family that is united. Eventually, I actually went away from that. And this was one that I might have in my sort of multiversity line, where it's just, it, this one is never connected to the main DC universe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, although maybe if there was a time-traveling story, they could actually interact. So this was this doesn't have to be on a different... Uh, a different plane it's just set a thousand years earlier right they could have like a crossover event right, right thing right. yeah i also tried to get that like that was kind of my holy grail through the the, the process mm-hmm. one of the most important things about each of the characters is the world they live in and we yeah. just couldn't get rid of like, like amethyst can't be in ancient atlantis or uh right. they can't all be in gem world or it doesn't it doesn't work so what did you do with arion lord of atlantis again i mean well this was I, I thought about kind of 
putting putting Atlantis in its own little universe or putting it back in the past or doing something else. But uh, eventually, and we'll talk a little bit more about this when we get to the entry for Atlantis, but I made this one kind of similar to the thing where Atlantis is this uh, a contemporary city that is underneath the ocean and it is kind of the seat for magic and Arion is the lord of it. He is the high mage and the ruler of this undersea kingdom of Atlantis. And to kind of put it in another context, I would see him as part Doctor Strange and part Black Panther in that he is kind of the the ruler, the king of this world and the political face, but he's also a superhero and he also deals with magic. Now, he's not part of the All-Star Squadron because Atlantis and the surface do not have a great working relationship. Um, and part of it is he... He deals with the encroachment of dark magic forces and eldritch terrors from the deep of the ocean and also other realms. But he's also dealing with the geopolitical situation of Atlantis within the world and negotiations with the surface because maybe they want to mine or plunder Atlantis for their own means. Because why wouldn't you know people of the surface do that if they found a, a hidden city that was technologically and magically advanced? Of of course we would try to exploit it and he has to keep them at bay and there would also be this understood strained relationship with aquaman that he knows who aquaman is and we might hint that aquaman is of, of noble birth and could potentially challenge him as ruler of the throne but for now aquaman isn't doing that he would kind of be the leader of this world of magic and science i really like that i think that's a great updating of the character to the modern day without losing anything uh, mm -hmm. necessarily that you had in the original Sword and Sorcery series. It even builds very well on, on, on the different characters that we are stuck with. Uh, you know, there's a lot of uh, Atlantean business in this. Yes, there is. <laughs> uh, so uh, for, I didn't I didn't move him through time. I kept him back in the day. The most intriguing thing about the first Arion story uh, that was in the back of Warlord uh, was the encroaching Ice Age uh, signaling the end of a great civilization. So you had ice all around. And uh, clearly, Arion's Atlantis will have to be a thinly veiled allegory of climate change, uh, sword and sorcery in the foreground. But, you know, in the background, you've got natural disasters, Neolithic refugees storming the Palisades. That happens in that first story. I want insular politics pushing ancient Atlantis towards fascism and uh, and looking, you know, navel gazing and trying to keep people out uh, and people in controlled. This is a highly political book for me, but I never let the writers reveal it in the dialogue. This is our world, except with fantasy trappings. It's just basically just a case of this has happened before and it will happen again. Battlestar Galactica writing principles. Arkham Asylum. So this is another place that we had. For me, I decided to for it to be a diptych with uh, House of Secrets. So <laughs> this one's the book is actually called Dr. Arkham's House of Madness. And it's, it's short stories. It's an anthology book. It may be multi-issue stories or single-issue stories. It's not an anthology within each issue, but overall. Really, like, in the style of Legends of the Dark Knight, say. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, but about Arkham's inmates. So you might get a two-face, two, uh, like a two-face four-parter. I guess it should be a two-parter. Uh, and then uh, a one-off about a totally new villain who is criminally insane in some way. Doesn't even have to be outlandish or have a code name or a lot of ordinary thugs in the background. At Arkham, it's not just the name villains. You could imagine all sorts of stories. What are the stories of these other people? Guest writers and artists, 
get to tell crime and madness stories, basically, which can take place in the asylum, outside the asylum. They can end with Batman busting their ass, but it's the villain's story, basically. <laughs> I, I had a different idea for this, and I swear yesterday I changed it to be the sister title, The House of, House okay. of Secrets. <laughs> so I, when, when you said that, I was like, wow, yeah, I guess we, we are on the same page. Um, I call this one House of Horrors, although I really like your Dr. Arkham's House of Madness. I really like that idea too and the other thing that i did is because i've as i mentioned this is a world that doesn't have batman i also kind of stripped the name villains of this so it's basically arkham asylum is just this this madhouse run by the most violent most dangerous and insane uh, uh criminals who would not be treated ethically uh, like in in a just world like this is a terrifying terrifying place uh where they are kept and i also imported a few other characters from this book this issue of who's who that we haven't covered because they were villains ah. what i did is i took a spin on midnight the witching hour comic which had the three different witches as the hosts the narrators for this but i went with the demons three ah. so every one of these stories it is a horror anthology book as you're saying but it's like just like house of secrets every one of the stories is narrated by abnagazar wrath or ghast um, and the stories are how these dangerous and disturbed patients in Ar of Arkham and possibly, I don't know, maybe showing how the demon's involvement in the lives landed these patients in the asylum. Like, somebody could be horrific if they, like, they're not crazy. They are literally possessed by demons. Um, I don't know how many times you can get away with that before it just becomes a broken formula. But yeah, this would be an anthology, but it would also feel a bit like Sandman and a nightmare on Elm street and the silence of the lambs, like <laughs> incorporating all of those real dark twisted elements. Right. Um, DC kids. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, <laughs> well, you have a world without a Batman. So I do. Yeah. yeah so, uh, so what do you do with Batman's insane asylum? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Atari force is the next one. So again, you know, big stars. Uh, I, I, I realize Atari force may not sound like the biggest stars, but they had their own series, which lasted about 20 issues. So, uh, these are like big names that are coming up here. It's like not a lot of morts, uh, on the mm -hmm. hero side, at least. What would you do with Atari force? Imagine that we do have a license deal. Yeah. So I actually, I went away with this. This was one that I took the name and basically scrapped the concept as much as I could okay. a little bit. Um, and I would make this a, a sibling title to Arian, Lord of Atlantis, and another book. And the Atari would be an acronym for something like Atlantean Targeting and Rescue Initiative or Training and Recruitment Initiative. This would be about a paramilitary group group of Atlanteans who are tasked with going to the surface world sort of covertly to capture and return rogue Atlantean wizards or sorcerers or villains who want to start trouble on the surface. Kind of like the same way that um, Hawkman and Hawkgirl came to Earth in the post-crisis to catch Biff. Or, or even the, the original conceit for X Factor or something like that. They're working in secret to cover up the existence that there is Atlantean activity on the surface of Earth uh, and do a little bit of damage control. So it's a little bit like Men in Black almost, but like with kind of a Navy SEALs approach to it. That makes sense in a world where there are no other comics but your own. Mm -hmm. So you're really giving Atlantis a central place. Yeah. For me, well, I guess it would, it would be simple. I say simple. It would be simple to contract, uh, JLGL 
PBHN, uh, to continue the characters he helped create, right? I mean, that sounds like the no-brainer. You get like a star artist. But I really think we should exploit the nostalgia that is okay. inherent in Atari. Uh, we're using the characters from the second series, fine. But I would want this to have more of a feel of uh, Guardians of the Galaxy, basically. Yep. But I would push the humor a lot more and make it a lot of 8-bit jokes and art sequences uh, in terms of storytelling style, I'm, I'm thinking more in terms of Adventure Time, the comic, uh, where the act okay. really yeah, did yeah. play around with the format and, and did like your own adventure and all sorts of crazy from comic to comic. They could, you could really change the formatting. So yes, Atari Force trapped in a maze with ghosts. Uh, and something that may very well be Pac-Man. <laughs> I want, yes, robots that go berserk. I want alien invaders. I want giant centipedes. Whatever else Atari's done. And I think that could include, like, modern-day connections. You know, Atari is involved in Witcher, for example. So, uh, <laughs> yeah. whatever. Whatever you can get. Really, the arcade stuff is what we're going after. But we could also parody more modern day or even non-Atari video games so long as we a little wink. That's what I would do with Atari Force. It would be a humor comic for me. Okay. Atlantis, finally. I can't wait to see what you're going to do with it. <laughs> but uh, for me, well, uh, you know, I haven't connected everything together. Atlantis Chronicles is already a title there. It, you know, it's an IP that I can exploit. I can resurrect it. Mm-hmm. I don't really have a better name for my series. But I don't want to tell that big fantasy historical saga that was Atlantis Chronicles. You know, at a decontracted pace or whatever. Yep, yep, yep. That doesn't interest me. Instead, I want to give Atlantis a treatment more like, I'm thinking, Terminal City or Astro City or uh, yep. <laughs> a GCPD series. I want to do The Wire underwater. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so I'm following the entry's lead, really, because we have two cities on, in the entry, Tritonis and Poseidonopolis. And uh, we're going to follow characters in both and focus on the rivalry between the fishtails and the bipeds and at every, every level we got politicians. Uh, we, I want to follow soldiers. I want to follow sports stars and sports fans in each city. Uh, how do populations react to events? I would even contrast the two places with maybe two artists, uh, maybe even two writers trying to one up each other. And, and so that would be like a gimmick. There'd be a gimmick in there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, Lori Lamaris and Volko are definitely in the series as like the recognizable figures that attract readers, maybe. Um, but otherwise, likely a lot of new characters that we follow temporarily or permanently. But I want this to be a huge cast to show it two societies living side by side. Are, are you going the same way? Is, uh... pretty, pretty much. Okay. <laughs> not, not quite with the dueling societies, but uh, yeah, I was going to call it the Atlantis Chronicles, probably just for lack of a better name, or, or the Chronicles of Atlantis or something. I also said I'm not going to do like the, the story of an ancient fantasy civilization. It is set in the world. It is kind of the third sibling title to Atari Force and Arian. They're all kind of connected, and I might in fact have have the same writer do all three books to kind of keep that continuity or, or something close to that. Maybe like a Jonathan Hickman, the what, what he's doing with the X-Men books now or Al Ewing or somebody else I like. But yeah, this one would be an open world book with an expansive ensemble cast, you know, short story arcs, maybe a, an issue or three issues or something like that. But I, I actually, I had my notes, something like Astro City uh, or the Martian Chronicles, the, the Ray Bradbury like stories and everything a little bit different, set in different 
different times, but all about this, you know, this hidden underwater city. You can have the different characters, like, uh, because it's a hub of kind of magic and advanced technology, you know, maybe this is where you introduce Garth and he could be a young boy like Aqualad or becoming Tempest, you know, his, his later teenage self or something and kind of coming into his magic. You could also have this street level detectives or plain clothes cops of Atlantis investigating crimes. You can tell a story about, you know, kelp farmers on the outskirts <laughs> yeah. dealing with, you know, undersea monsters and, and piracy. Um, Atlantis would also be the hub of kind of portals to other magical things. Like in my world, you know, Tritonus might not necessarily be on the same plane of existence, the same dimension as the regular heroes, but there is a, a portal to that world and other fantasy scapes. Same thing with Zebel. Atlantis might be able to transport, you know, through magic to Gemworld. And that's how you can get a crossover with Amethyst or something like that uh, and kind of cross over with those. So, yeah, really, this would be a big kind of all approaching. Like, what is this civilization? What is this society? And all of the different types of, of stories that you can tell from, you know, pulp detective stories underwater to, you know, just like general soap operas to other kinds of, of superhero stories with original creation characters set down here and yeah a lot of crossover with the same characters and the same you know supports as you know Ariane, uh lord of atlantis and atari force you know maybe volko is the major domo to Ariane. he's like his right hand man and he might you know be in like one page of the Ariane book and then he takes center stage in the atlantis chronicles for an issue or two right. something like that yeah you could do like the politics of like game of thrones kind of yeah exactly yeah he's little finger <laughs> yeah. cool i mean <laughs> volko volko's you know, pleasure house <laughs> Let's see that issue. <laughs> Not like we didn't have any um, challenges up to now, but this is a challenge. We have two entries with a character called Adam. We can't have two books called The Adam. I, I want to see what you did with, well, first of all, The Golden Age Adam. So, yeah, yeah, this one was tough in deciding which, which Adam is going to be called The Adam and which one. Mm -hmm. um, and and because I had an idea right away for the other one, this Adam... Uh, it took me a little bit longer to get my handle on it, but it is Al Pratt, the original Adam, but he's not in the golden age. He is, you know, poured up to, to the contemporary era because he is part of the all-star squadron. He's like the fifth member, I guess. My main all-star squadron would be Aquaman, Amazing Man, Animal Man, Airwave, and the Atom. And maybe other characters who couldn't headline their own book would also be like support members right. of the team. But this is Alf Pratt. He is afflicted with dwarfism. His height, he's about four and a half feet tall, uh, maybe on the taller end for a dwarf, but, you know, still would fit that, that genetic distinction. But he's a smart man. He's schooled in nuclear physics and engineering, but he is trained to defend himself by this boxer, Joe Morgan, which is from his uh, origin. Now, something that I picked up on the secret origin of the Atom when I first read it is, I don't know if Roy Thomas was ever trying to connect this, but maybe it was something in the art, but I felt like there was some homosexual subtext between Al Pratt and this Joe Morgan character when he was training him. So I took that and I ran with it, where this Al falls in love with him and he may be, he may be homosexual. He may be bisexual, but he, he's used to fighting through that. And because of his intelligence and he's also has this, you know, nuclear physics and engineering background. So he creates these, what I would call nuclear powered, although they're not actually, but these nuclear powered boxing gloves that give him super powered punches. So even though he is of small stature, when he punches, it hits you like a 
rocket and because of you know it's the comics you draw them up like they would kind of like glow with energy sort of like iron fist like imagine like when iron fist hits like it's that type of character for his costume i i kind of like the weird brown part of his costume it's something so unique to him and it, it kind of it reminds me of a little bit of like a wrestling singlet or like a harness and with the full face mask it it does kind of give him a little bit of a gimp look. So I would play into this leathery bondage outfit to redesign his costume. I mean, this, this would be a character who is a dwarf bisexual into some kind of BDSM stuff, but also very insecure about his height and his sexuality. This is me going after all of the social issues that I can think of. Okay. It's body issues, uh, sexuality, like, identity issues. Everything is basically thrown in to this one character. And he also has like the, the, the theory of the Iron Fist powers. If I gave uh, one of my characters an LGBT spin, it was probably have been airwave because uh because i wanted to be two generations far removed one misunder not really understanding the other so uh i would want the modern airwave to be as modern as possible in this case this is my regendered character okay because al pratt can still exist in the all-star squadron book uh in fact should so this is his granddaughter, great-granddaughter. I don't know how, how far apart they have to be. <laughs> and Pratt, she has her own title. She's the Atom. She is the mm-hmm. Atom. Premise is the same, but I think people underestimated the Atom because of his short stature. That was part of the shtick. Uh, and that, yep. that would be doubly true of this petite young woman. No size-changing powers, nothing. Martial training, that's it. Uh, and a propensity for kicking ass. This one's perfect for this. This one I attach Gail Simone to because mm-hmm. I wandered my stable of writers. It would actually be the first Adam series she ever wrote. Come to think of it, but I actively want people to clamor for this new Adam to join the Birds of Prey, basically. So uh, mm-hmm. I would let her run with it. But it it is a street level, you know, with a, a sassy humor to it. I like it. Yeah. Adam 2, <laughs> uh, Ray Palmer, we can't very well have two series called The Atom, right? So I've got choices. I got Power of the Atom, Sword of the Atom that they've already used. All new Adam. You could, you could have Adam and all new Adam in the same. Yeah. I thought, what else could it be? So I literally stole an old slogan of the X-Men's. I'm calling this one Children of the Atom. Okay. It's my all ages series in which Ray Palmer is demoted to high school or junior high science teacher. He works at Ivy Town Junior High. The kids he teaches are transformed when they find his stash of white dwarf matter. Hmm. They each have their own power set, but it's all stuff to do with size and weight and density and atomic reactions. And the science is educational, but in a Silver Age Adam kind of sense. Uh, like, not too much. Ray Palmer himself becomes a mentor to the kids, but they don't know that he's still moonlighting as the Adam, who is actually their parents' foggy old superhero. Uh, and he's helping them out of jams invisibly at first. The kind of guardian angel. Uh, so I need this to be fun and humorous. I might hand the writing over to someone like Jeff Parker, who I really loved his all-ages humor stuff for the Marvel Adventures line. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What about you? Well, I also changed the title, um, and actually with it, it starts with a letter C-H. I have Professor Ray Palmer being the leader of Challengers of the Unknown. And it's still Ray Palmer is the leader, and he still ha- he discovers the means of shrinking his body down to atomic size, um, and he just bands with other scientific adventures and leads missions. So it's it's a lot like Challengers of the Unknown, except instead of the four being just these survivors who uh, who don't have powers, the four have powers, sort of like 
uh, Fantastic Four, I will concede. Um, but they, maybe some of them have powers, maybe some of them don't. But at the heart of it is led by Professor Ray Palmer. He's the one who kind of like leads it and brings these people together. And everything from going down into the microverse or beyond, like to, to other far out locations, fighting robots and aliens and dragons and whatever the heck they can find. It's just, it's a challengers of the unknown book sort of, but with the Adam as the leader. I almost went that direction, not the challengers, yeah. but going down to the microverse and maybe electrons might be entire planets and that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, uh, yeah. But, uh, and, and call it sort of the Adam in that case. Yeah. yeah. But um, at the end of the day, I was like, there's just too many sword and sorcery books. Uh, <laughs> so I went the other way. The Atomic Knight, uh, not a sword and sorcery, and yet <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> so what would you do with The Atomic Knight? Uh, so this one is actually another of the multiversity books for me. I have this out of the normal mainstream line. Uh, it's its own little continuity. And because, well, I mean, potentially it wouldn't have to be, but that's because I have this one set in the far future. I have this as a classic science fiction, like set, you know, a thousand, two thousand years, or hundreds of years in the future, I should say. And it is Atomic Knights, plural. Same. But the premise is basically it's the it's the same hero characters. This guy named Gardner Grail, who is drafted into the ranks of the elite Atomic Knights, which is a corps of space fighter pilots who wear these like mecha suits of armor to defend Earth from interstellar or interdimensional invasions. It's like Voltron meets Top Gun meets Pacific Rim meets, you know, Exo Squad. It's that type of thing. It, it kind of has an army military defense, like a Robotech type of feel to it, but with like the conceit that he's, he's wearing this, you know, suit of armor, like this knight's armor, just an updated thing, but they, it would be a lot of, you know, flying around in the skies or in space fighting alien ships, alien monsters, things like that. So, yeah. You know, Knights riding giant Dalmatians is uh, in the post-apocalypse. <laughs> it's a great visual. Mm. And making it grim and gritty in the final crisis. Yeah. <laughs> that lost Grant Morrison this job. <laughs> <laughs> now, what I want from this is, like, you know, crazy commandy style stories. I want them to be inspired by Arthurian myth. I want to get to know more than just Gardner Grail. So I'm calling it Atomic Knights as well. In fact, I'd even open with a big quest to find the Grail. I'm not, I'm not proud. Uh, I'll exploit a bad pun. <laughs> and the series is, uh, they're looking for Gardner. He's missing from the onset. We discover who he is through flashbacks. Uh, maybe they're illustrated. Not maybe. I want them to be illustrated in the style of like Prince Valiant. I think that's like a, a classic comic that people don't talk about enough. And so there's a round table of characters to introduce. I want the writers to make me care about at least one dog. <laughs> this could conceivably be one of my favorite series in the roster. Mm -hmm. So Oron. <clears throat> <laughs> A fairly unknown member of the dreaded Omega Men. So he was always going to be a challenge. And uh, we sort of laughed about it prior to the show while we were working on our notes. <laughs> the messages we sent back to each other with Oron and the F word <laughs> attached to it were many, were plentiful. Yeah, but I read his little bio here and it gave me an idea, actually. So um, it wasn't the hardest for me to, to nail down. He's one of two offspring of the genetically engineered goddess Sal or Shal. Created when the Scions forced her to mate with a Branks warrior. I don't know what any of this means. But uh, so Oron has an opposite brother, the first Citadelian. So this has to be the story. Two brothers, one light, one dark, one with the cosmic power, you know, the power cosmic. The other one with sociopolitical power on his planet. The series is about Oron dismantling his brother's organization and simultaneously trying to save his soul. Like he's trying to save him from himself 
That's why he's devoted his life to, to stopping him from creating mayhem or causing evil. I might even let him succeed. But, you know, there's always something pulling the Citadelian back. It would be a story of dark ironies and tortured dilemmas with characters <laughs> that have complex psychologies. In space! <laughs> what did you come up with? Oh, it was tough for this one. And, like, when I got out, I was like, it, like, just looking at this entry and then seeing, I was like, wait, this is the last one? This is the one that we have to end on, too? Um, this was tough because I, I know nothing really about the Omega Men, nor do I care about them that much. Yeah. And just looking at the entry for this character, I hate the visual look of this guy. He is just yellowish gold light with a halo around him and he flies. Um, I did a, I did a, a show with Derek William Crabb not too long ago for, for one of his podcasts. We talked about the Silver Surfer and I kind of talked a little bit about the character of Nova from the Silver Surfer books. And I like Frankie Ray. I like how she's written. I hate that design. It's just so generic and it's worse on this guy with his, you know, the long hair. So. If I could find a way of updating his look, I would, but I don't have really anything in mind. I did think about making him basically a Silver Surfer type of character, but I wanted to try something different. The other thing that I had to concede was if I left him on Earth, if I made him an Earth-based character, if you look at him compared to – like the first entry, it says he has nearly godlike power. Look at who my other superheroes are. Who is my all-star squadron? They're not god-level heroes. I was like, yeah, I, I can't have him on that same world mm. and be, you know, part of that all-star squadron or go up against them. It's going to look really ridiculous and unfair. So I have him out in space. Similar to, I, I actually, I didn't really even think about doing anything with the brother. I like what you have in mind there. But instead, I, I have him going as a sort of interstellar version of the Bill Bixby Hulk. He travels the cosmos from planet to planet, and he's always on the run from his psychotic mother, Zhao, or whatever it is, who wants to use him as a weapon of mass destruction uh, and revenge. And he doesn't want that. So he, he's running from her, and he has to keep going to other planets, and he's constantly embroiled in local affairs, and he has to use his power, and that exposes him. So he has to run away again. Uh, yes, I would try to change his look. I, the, I would also change the visual cues for like how, like what he looks like in movement. I don't like when he just he just flies by just like laying there, sort of standing still, and <laughs> and the like the light goes around him. I would do a little bit something different, like instead of that trailing wave of light, he runs. Like it says something like a, like a bridge of light. So like it looks like he's running, and he creates light underneath him, like hard light underneath him, sort of like a special effect that's kind of a cross between the light from Tron, as you mentioned, but also like Iceman's ice bridge, like projectiles. So just something like that as a, a way of distinguishing him visually, I think would be a little bit better, a little bit more palatable. Yeah. One of the characters that he looks like is Marvel's Nebulon. I, th yeah. I think that was the name, but it's like, it's this with a, uh, a cool black outfit that has stars in it, just like, like Star mm -hmm. Boys. Yeah. He's a Defenders villain. Yeah. Yeah. yeah Oron. Eh? Uh. <laughs> <laughs> I know Oron came back in the Superman books, like around the Dan Jurgens era, really? I think. Yeah, in like the early 90s or some point. Like this would be something Michael Bailey would have to tell us because I'm sure uh, an Oron that looked very different, but somebody with that name was used in like the early 90s Superman. I mean, the, the, your your series is totally potable. I think those series do work. And in this imagined line of books, Oron is somebody because we decided he's somebody. You need to make that first step for any character. Yeah. Did you make that step for a villain in the issue? Uh, just very minorly. The one, when I looked at this, the one villain that I really like that I would like to do more with, um, I've always liked Atomic Skull. 
I just think it's a cool name, a cool concept, a, a look. Um, it goes back to, I, I had, um, a DC Comics Presents that had the Atomic Skull in it. But I, what I would do with him, I don't really know. Uh, I, I think I would make, I, I would actually, no, I would try and make it more of a horror type of book or have like that horror feel and make him kind of a cross between Firestorm, Ghost Rider, and Man Thing. Where like his encounters with people like really like he burns them off by looking at them with his like maybe he has like a, a like a nuclear like helmet over his face like that X Men character Zorn from the Grant Morrison era and like when it opens up like the the faceplate opens up and you just see the the skull just radiating like green atomic energy and it just like shoots fire that just like burns you off with radiation something horrific like that but what like in terms of like a character or a plot I don't know I'm not sure what I would do with him he, he maybe I would just use him as a villain in the stories and not give him his own book but if i had to give a villain from this group their own book and i already used the demons three i would try and do something with atomic skull but i didn't think more about it than that the post-crisis atomic skull is kind of a cross between ghost rider and silver blade uh, because yeah, there's yeah, like yeah. a movie fascination thing so that could have been i think that maybe it's not this same character but Somebody could play around with that. I wanted to do something with Atomic Skull just because he's my bizarro namesake, <laughs> Albert Michaels. And my real name is Michel Albert or Michael Albert. But I, I just couldn't. I didn't even make that connection. Yeah, no. So I, I just, I, I couldn't make him a good lead uh, in any kind of story. So uh, not this version anyway. So actually, my idea was for Angleman, an Angleman series. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Think Robert Kirkman's Thief of Thieves in terms of comics. Uh, okay. or Ocean's Eleven in movies, or Hustle and Leverage on TV. Angelo Bend always has an angle. And this would be a glitzy <laughs> heist and con man series where the angle man might recruit criminals from across the DC universe to help him commit clamorous robberies. It's like Suicide Squad, but for a cut of the take. You know, if, when superheroes do get involved, it's always someone else in the crew who takes the fall. It's never him. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's got an angle. So I, I would I would do it as this, because I, I think you could make Angle Man into one of these villains that people sort of minted as anti-heroes, you know, a dead shot or a, mm-hmm. well, any member of Secret Six. I, I like that idea, and I would think it's something like uh, like Nick Spencer's deadly superior foes of Spider-Man. Yes, exactly. Yes, yes. So yep. uh, I would do something like that with Engelman as the protagonist. All right, dear listeners, it's time uh, it's time for you to go to fireandwaterpodcast.com and tell us what you think. Would you read any of these books? Uh, if you were in charge, what series would you offer using these characters? Uh, I hope you had fun, Ryan. I did. This was a lot more fun than I thought. Well, no, I thought it would be kind of fun, but this was a very different kind of fun. And as difficult and as challenging as it was coming up with some of these ideas, I, I did like the mental exercise, and I loved hearing some of your ideas, too. I really don't know what to expect from Diablo Frank, given what he used to write for the Who's Who podcast entries. But yeah, for, for everybody who writes in and leaves a comment for this one, the, the ideas that you guys might generate, I, yeah, I think this would be, I think this is going to be a lot of fun. And I definitely hope that this is not the only one of this series that you do. I hope this continues to be a very fun and long lasting podcast. I hope to do more. And I mean, I thought you were going to say it was a lot more work than you thought it would. <laughs> yeah. You know what? I read like what 1300 Batman panels for that podcast that we never even aired. So this was, a, this was comparatively simple. Allegedly. <laughs> 
Uh, well, thanks for trying this experiment with me, and we'll see if my next guest is as much of a of an enfant terrible uh, as you're known to be. But uh, or if they, you know, if they'll do like me and just like oh, just part of the bigger DC universe, or actually try to tighten it up. I thought that was the most interesting thing that you brought to it is saying DC Comics is now just 22 comics, and it's these, mm-hmm. and they have to work together within the same universe and exclude anything else. I, I thought that was the most interesting aspect of what you brought to it beyond, you know, the, the single titles. It's because I'm trying to diet now that I'm trimming all the fat, including in the DC comics. <laughs> and it's also kind of your wish for if, if people listen to that FW Presents, where Didio out, Fire and Water mm-hmm. in, you wanted to try something very trim, very slim, you know, getting rid of a lot of the history and the, the characters everybody knows to do something that was compact. So that this is sort of in that same line. Yeah, yeah. That must just be where my head is at. <laughs> well then, uh, until next time, who's editing? We are. What I wanted for Aquaman was something that was like big, epic, mythical, sexy, right? Like elemental. Um, and so what's bigger and epicer and more elementaler than, um, than Led Zeppelin? <laughs> <laughs>